morning. I'm Matt. I'm doing the Bible reading this morning. It is Zechariah chapter 1, verse 18 to 21. Then and there before me were four horns. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these? He answered me, these are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen, and I asked, what are these coming to do? He answered, these are the horns that scattered Judah, so that no one could raise their head, that the craftsmen have come to terrify them and throw down these horns of nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter its people. And you might might be thinking, what the heck is that reading all about? But even more, what the heck is all that about? Uh, Well, thanks, Dan, for the anvil. We'll get to that uh, later on. I'm going to pray uh, before we spend some time uh, looking a little bit more closely at that passage and what the heck that's all about. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all of the Bible. Thank you particularly for the book of Zechariah uh, as it speaks to your ways in the world, particularly your interest in uh, how those ways and the nations therein impact on your people. And we pray that you would give us insight now uh, into and a comfort uh, into your workings in the world continuing to work in the world these days as well. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I I would encourage you, if you have a Bible, to open it up uh, to that passage in Zechariah chapter uh, 1 as we continue on uh, in our series uh, in Zechariah. But to get us off, uh, kick us off kind of thinking about something probably, as uh, Roger mentioned actually in his prayer, uh, you know, since October 7 and the Hamas attacks on Israel and Israel's response, I'm sure, along with me, uh, you've been appalled by the violence and the bloodshed. And pictures like this uh, just make your heart sink. But perhaps you've wondered, as you've contemplated all this horrendous activity, who should you be supporting? Uh, as Christians, who should we support? Uh, the Jews or the Palestinians? Because the Jews are God's ancient people, right? Of all the nations on the planet, God chose the Israelites to be his special people. And even though the Bible records much of them rejecting him and suffering for it, it's pretty clear that they are still precious to him. Certainly there are the prophet Zechariah says as much. So as Christians, as those who believe in Jesus, a Jew, what should we want to see come out of this conflict in Israel and Gaza? Well, hopefully uh, this passage today in Zechariah might give us some footing uh, on this as we think about this topic. But first, it's important that we orientate ourselves again to this little book uh, in the Bible, the book of Zechariah. At a crucial point in... uh, a part in a crucial part in the history of God's ancient people, the Israelites, God gave the prophet Zechariah a bunch of visions, daydreams, if you will, uh, visions about restoring them back to the promised land. They'd been kicked out of the promised land uh, because they kept disobeying God for hundreds of years. 
uh, these is people in the north of Israel. So I'm sorry if you can't see that, but that's a picture of the Middle East. And there is uh, <laughs> Israel blown up here for you, hopefully. So in the north, we've got Israel. And in the south, we've got Judah, right? Uh, for hundreds of years, though, these people in the north, in the north of Israel and in the south of Israel, they just kept disobeying God. Uh, they went after other gods, the gods of the nations around about them. Uh, they went after the, their other ways, not God's ways. They went the ways of the nations around about them. And they did this time and time and time again, despite the fact that God kept sending his prophets time and time and time again, warning them to stop it, to turn around, to turn back to him. Uh, sometimes some listened to him, but most of the time most didn't. And so finally, God, uh, God's like, that's it. I, I've had it with you, mob. Uh, you're out. You, you can't just keep living in my place however you want, not keeping my rules, and think you'll get away with it. So I've had it. You're out. Uh, so God boots the Israelites out of the Promised Land. Firstly, in 722 BC, he boots the northern uh, Israelites out of the Promised Land using the Assyrian Empire at the time to do it, and it's devastating. The Assyrians, they boot northern Israel basically into oblivion. Uh, they take over the land, they, they take all the educated and, the, and exile them throughout the rest of the Assyrian Empire, and then they interbreed with the remainder of, the, of, the, of those that were left in the land of Israel, the poor and so forth, basically breeding the Israelites out. They're gone. And then around uh, 200 years later... Uh, God uses the Babylonian Empire to boot the southern part of Israel, Judah, out of the Promised Land. For the same reasons, disobeying God. He exiles them to Babylon and he leaves Judah and Jerusalem in ruins. But God makes a promise to them. Uh, Through the prophet Jeremiah, he says, your exile, your punishment, it'll last for 70 years. And then I'll bring you back to the Promised Land, the land uh, of Israel. But then the, the 70 years are up. Uh, but while God's uh, good to keep his promises, God is very interested in keeping his promises and bringing them back. He's not sure, actually sure if the Israelites really understand what that means. And that's when Zechariah comes on the scene as, the, as his prophet. So Zechariah starts his ministry saying, The Lord says, Return to me and I'll return to you. Uh, and you might... Hopefully you have received one of these, well, a couple of these cards. You'll be receiving uh, these cards throughout the course of our series in Zechariah. Hopefully it's just little aids to help you remember uh, what's going on in the book of Zechariah. So the first, uh, Zechariah starts off saying, uh, God speaking through Zechariah, saying, return to me and I'll return to you, uh, urging the Israelites to get on board with his his inevitable promise to bring them back to the land and to be his people as he wants them to be. And then God gives Zechariah the first of his visions of uh, horsemen secretly going out over the planet. Okay, and that's on the second card. Uh, Like spies, these horsemen are like spies, God's undercover agents scooping out what's going on in the world, uh, showing us that God sees it all. There's nothing on this planet that he doesn't see particularly what's done to his special people, the Israelites, and who's doing it and how they've abused them. And as we saw last week, God tells Zechariah he's going to restore his people, bring them back to the land uh, and build up Jerusalem. Again, make the Israelites prosper in the land again. But then 
uh, God shifts Zechariah's vision uh, back on the nations. So he's been focusing on uh, Israel and his people and Jerusalem. Uh, he's, he's focusing his vision back on the nations, to those who've mistreated his people and what's going to happen to them, which is where we pick things up in Zechariah with this uh, vision of four horns, uh, those who mistreat God's people. And we'll see a picture of four craftsmen, you know, those who bring judgment on them. God's agents of judgment on those who've abused his people. And once uh, we've had uh, looked at that, we'll take a closer look at uh, the craftsman, God's ultimate agent of judgment. And we'll wrap up thinking about God's judgment on those who mistreat his people now at the hands of the one who is more than a carpenter. The first are the four horns, right? Verse 18, let's have a look. Now I looked up and there before me were four horns. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these? He answered me, these are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel and Jerusalem. So these horns that uh, scattered Judah, Israel and Jerusalem, they've got to be at least a reference to the Assyrian and the Babylonian empires, right? Uh, Assyria who smashed Israel, the northern part, and scattered the Israelites into oblivion. And then the Babylonian uh, empire who smashed Judah and Jerusalem and scattered them throughout the Babylonian empire. But why, why are they pictured as horns? And why are there four of them? Well, what do you normally associate with a horn? Uh, maybe something that makes a noise? Yeah? Uh, a while ago I found an online bullhorn that uh, had been turned into a trumpet. Uh, it was only about 30, 20 or 30 bucks, so think quality. Um, anyway, I take this horn uh, to my son's soccer games uh, and every time his team would score a goal, I'd blow it with gusto right? uh, from the sidelines. Um, at first, uh, people, mainly Lockie, uh, my son, he was a little bit bemused, maybe embarrassed is a better word, because uh, I really got into it. Okay? Uh, the, the day that they scored eight or so goals in a row, I almost passed out with enthusiasm. <laughs> Anyway, like a good joke, you just got to commit to it, right? Uh, even if it, if it bombs in the first telling, you persevere and people get on board. It was the same with this horn trumpet, right? I just kept blowing that thing. It became the sound of victory, triumph, a symbol of power and prowess. And uh, that might be a bit about what's going on here with this vision of Zechariah. Certainly back in those days, horns were mostly attached to bulls. Uh, and they're they're a powerful beast. Uh, I don't, most of us don't really mix with uh, bulls much, do we? I mean, I don't know about you. I haven't spent much time with a bull this week. Um, but if you've ever been up to one up close, they're pretty intimidating, right? Yeah. And if they're on the move and they're not happy, that's scary town. Uh, Megs and I, we went to the uh, sculpture by the sea exhibition this week, uh, and there was this great. Uh, imposing bronze sculpture of a bull uh, that was pitch black. I think it captured something really of the, of the intimidating and implacable power of a bull. So it could be that Assyria and Babylon are pictured in this uh, vision as bull horns in their power and their prowess. In fact, that's most definitely the reason that bull horns or metal-shaped bull horns were attached to soldiers' helmets. Uh, in those days to signify imposing power, maybe even kingly or godlike power. Uh, 
here's some uh, rock relief from about the time of the horned helmets that were actually worn by warlike gods. Sorry if you can't see it, but uh, the one on the your right, uh, that's Hadad, the uh, Babylonian god of thunder and lightning, uh, and he's got a horned helmet. But back in uh, Zechariah's vision, I reckon Assyria and Babylon are represented as horns, not just as a sign of their power and prowess, but actually of their beastliness. Uh, In other visions that God gives his prophets, particularly the prophet Daniel, who was a little bit before Zechariah, we see the nations in his visions represented as beasts. In one very significant vision, Daniel sees one like a son of man who stands out in contrast to all the other uh, figures. Not only is he given all power and authority by God to rule nations, but in contrast to the other figures around him representing the empires and the nations of the world, he's the only truly human character. It's quite a contrast. All the rest are kind of macabre mashups of different types of animals. They're beasts. All inhuman and terrifying in their animalistic power and beastliness. The Assyrian and Babylonian empires, they were animalistic in the exercise of their power, as was the Persian Empire after them and the Greek Empire after that, and the Roman Empire, and so on and so on. Every empire and nation before and after is more or less inhuman and abusive. They're, they're beastly. But I reckon there's, there's also a spiritual angle to these horns as well. Since the, the horned helmets also seem to be associated with the gods, as we saw earlier. So in, in these horns, there's more than a, than a hint of a spiritual power at work behind the political, cultural, military power of the nations and the empires as well. A beastly, malevolent, spiritual power behind Assyria and Babylon and behind every other beastly nation and empire too. Uh, Hinted at with there being four horns, right? So there are four horns, as in the four ends of the earth or the four points of a compass. Four horns representing all the beastly powers seen and unseen in the nations and the empires of the world, but with a particular focus on their treatment of God's people. In Zechariah's day, on how these powers abused and scattered the ancient Israelites, but it's no less the case now. God still has a particular interest and focus on how these powers abuse and scatter his people. Who are his people today? Well, it's all who trust in Jesus, Jews and non-Jews. Back in Zechariah's day, it was the empires of Babylon and Persia that were abusing them. In our day, it's interesting, I reckon, to think which empire it is whose power we feel the most, particularly for us here in Australia. What's the empire? It's America. They have to be, right? In, In all but name, America is an empire. American imperialism is a real thing. Uh, As American politics, economy, culture, media and military prowess and power expands and influences almost every part of the world. And what Zechariah's vision helps us to see, I reckon, is that there's not only a spiritual power behind the American empire, but God is particularly focused and interested in how that power abuses and scatters his people tempting them, forcing them to follow after its gods. You know, what are the gods of America? The gods of materialism, selfism, hedonism, the sexualization of everything. 
just to name a few. In this, American power is beastly and malevolent. And as such, America is just another horn on the helmet of beastly seen and unseen powers that work in the world. Powers that reveal how helpless we are, how helpless the Israelites were back then, and how much they needed to be saved. Which sets the stage for the next part in Zechariah's vision, the vision of four craftsmen. Verse 20. We read, the, uh, the Lord then showed me, Zechariah, four craftsmen. We read. I asked, what are these coming to do? He answered, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could raise their head. But the craftsmen have come to terrify them and throw down these horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter its people. So Zechariah, he sees four craftsmen, like carpenters or blacksmiths, and they come to the four horns, to the beastly, unseen and seen powers in the world, particularly Assyria and Babylon in mind, who scattered the Israelites and beat them down, so much that they, uh, who have beat down the, uh, his people, that, uh, so much they can't raise their head. And these, these craftsmen then come to terrify these powers and throw them down. And they come at the behest of God. So they're actually God's agents sent to bring the beastly, seen and unseen powers in the world, to bring them to heal. Now in Zechariah's day, it seems the Persian Empire is represented by these craftsmen. As Cyrus, the first Persian emperor, defeats Babylon and then reverses its foreign policy, he allows, he even encourages the Israelites to go back to the land of Judah and to rebuild, which they do. And in Zechariah's day, they'd already started. And the emperors after Cyrus, including Darius, who Zechariah mentions, continue this Persian policy. Babylon, which terrified the Israelites, is terrified itself and brought down by God's agent, God's craftsman, Persia. The picture uh, being something like uh, a blacksmith hammering a metal horn on an anvil, smashing it, breaking it to pieces. Needs an accompanying sound, I reckon. I am Persia. That is Babylon. That Persia represents by four craftsmen, again, like the four points of a compass, seems to suggest a point to the, the worldwide power that Persian, the Persian Empire had had at the time. But there's, there's a, a little bit of a question mark around this image because the Persian Empire is ultimately another horn, right? It may not have been as beastly as Babylon, treating the Israelites you know, a little bit better than the Babylonians did, but it didn't set them free. It didn't let them re-establish their own kingdom. It still kept control over them, taxing them and forcing them to be a part of their empire. Persia may have been God's craftsman to terrify and bring down Babylon, but the same could be said of Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire with him, who comes after the, per the Persians to terrify them and bring them down, and of the Roman Empire after that, and so forth and so on. And so in this, it seems the four craftsmen are going to represent the powers at work in the world, terrifying and bringing down their predecessors, but all under the direction and control of God. The churn of, 
of kingdoms and nations rising and falling, then it's no accident. And it's not firstly a sign of human power and ingenuity. It's not firstly the political or cultural or technological or military superiority of one nation and empire over another. It's firstly a sign of God's judgment. His judgment that no evil empire or nation lasts forever. That every single one is eventually destined to be terrified and taken over by another. Everyone judged as wanting in its beastliness and in its malevolence. That means, for instance, that America will not last. One day, that empire will fall at the hands of a craftsman of God's choosing, as will the Chinese empire, as will every empire and power at work in the world. And that this churn is by God's design, it's a sign of his judgment. In fact, it's a sign pointing to a final judgment. Empire overthrowing empire anticipates this. That these are, in fact, just a shadow of the final judgment. A rusty hammer in the hand of a child compared to the power and precision of the hydraulic pole driving machine of God's final judgment. So that God's people might trust him until then. That God's people need not fear the rise and fall of unseen and seen malevolent powers in the world. The Israelites, God's people in Zechariah's day, they didn't need to fear the machinations and the schemes of the powers that work in the world. The churn of horns and craftsmen, they're subject to him. God's people can trust him while they wait. They could in Zechariah's day and they can today. Which brings us to our final point. The craftsman, the craftsman, Jesus, the great craftsman. Yet those who trust in Jesus now are God's people, Jew or non-Jew. And they don't need to fear the schemes of the powers that work in the world either. Firstly, because we know the spiritual forces behind all the powers in the world They have been brought to heal by Jesus. Uh, The Apostle Paul says uh, this. It's fantastic. He's speaking to Christians. He said, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And then take a look at this. And having disarmed... The powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So at the cross, as Jesus died for our sins, we're told Jesus triumphs over the powers and authorities at work in the world. The unseen spiritual malevolent powers. He disarms them. He, he took away their power to tempt us into sin and then condemn us when we did it. Because Jesus has taken away the penalty for all our sins, including the sins that we haven't committed yet. Jesus has set us free from the powers and authorities that work in the world, the powers behind political, cultural, technological and military empires, the powers that seek to drag us down into an endless cycle of sin and death and despair. Jesus has sucked the poison out of their bite. He's forgiven us for everything. Where once we were dead to God, now we're alive. We're in God's kingdom. 
And so we don't need to look to the powers at work in the world to save us or promise us a good life and then worry when there's constant upheaval amongst them. As Jesus says in Matthew 24, it's recorded, he said, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumours of wars, but see to it that none that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Jesus says, don't put your hope in the powers in this world, in America, in the UN, in capitalism, in Marxism, or materialism, or in political will, or in any earthly community. Whatever functional Messiah you look to to give you purpose or to stop you being bored, Jesus says, don't be deceived. They can't save you. And the churn of kingdoms against kingdoms, of craftsmen against horns, this is just a sign of how inadequate and powerless the powers at work in this world are and how they anticipate an end like the beginning of birth pains and their mistreatment of God's people. Well, this is nothing to be alarmed about, Jesus says. It's all part of God's plan. Indeed, it's a sign of his judgment, the beginning of birth pains, a foretaste of his final judgment. As the Gospel of Jesus tells us, The gospel, Jesus says, will be preached throughout the whole world. The gospel which anticipates the end, that final day when Jesus returns to judge the world. A day that God shows the Apostle John in another vision. A vision that he records in the book of Revelation uh, where John writes this. It's, It's pretty full on. On that final day, the heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Like a like peeling back the lid on a sardine can, Jesus will leave no place for anyone to hide from him. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty and everyone else, both slaves and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. See, at the end of the day, Kings, emperors, rulers, all those who've taken part in beastly power-mongering in the world, who've hated God and his people, they'll be terrified by Jesus, of him seeing them, having to face him. Earlier this year, I remember losing my cool with one of my kids and angrily saying something stupid to them while Megs listened on just next to me. All she had to do was look at me. And I felt as guilty as hell. You ever had that experience? Yeah, someone just looking on as you've done something stupid, done something wrong. It's unbearable, isn't it? They don't say anything. You wish they'd say something or do something, but they just keep looking at you. <laughs> and you know you're guilty. And the torture, that's torture in and of itself. And that's how it'll be with Jesus. 
seeing those who've abused his people in all their vile, guilt and filthy, godless ways, they'll be so terrified, so ashamed, they'll prefer a mountain to fall on them than to be exposed before him. Exposed before his oncoming wrath at them for how they mistreated his people. As John's vision ends, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Nobody. On that day, nobody will be able to bear up under the weight of Jesus' judgment for how they've mistreated him and his people. It'll be pure, unadulterated torture. And it'll be entirely and utterly justified and right. I don't think it's any mistake that it's craftsmen in Zechariah's vision. Craftsmen, blacksmith, you know, carpenters, who are pictured as agents of God's judgment. Because in this, they anticipate the one true agent of God's judgment, the son of a carpenter, the carpenter of carpenters, Jesus Christ. One day soon, he's coming. He's coming. And for all those who've mistreated Jesus and his people in any way, it'll be terrifying. So look out, all you empires and nations who gnash and thrash at God's people. Your days are numbered. Terror and destruction await you. The carpenter is at the door. Jesus is coming. And that is good news for those of us who are trusting in Jesus. We don't need to fear the powers at work in the world or the intractably beastly nature of those powers as we see at work in Israel and the Gaza. One day, Jesus will return and there will be swift and terrible justice on all the powers that be, particularly for how they've treated his people. That is, those who believe in Jesus, both Jew and non-Jew and Palestinian. And so along with Jesus, they should be the people that we look to to support first. Those who trust in Jesus, both Jew and Palestinian. Because they're not only our brothers and sisters in Christ, together with us, they are the apple of God's eye and they are his primary focus and interest in all that goes on in this planet. So I'm going to lead us in prayer, supporting them now. Gracious God and almighty Father, we thank and praise you for your your ways in the world that the churn of kingdoms is just a sign, a sign of your judgment, a sign that Zechariah and the Israelites knew with the churn of the Assyrian, Babylonian, Persian nations, but a sign of your keen interest and concern for your people and how you will bring judgment, how you do bring judgment and how one day that judgment will find its 
pure satisfaction in the one true agent of judgment, your son, the carpenter, Jesus Christ. We thank and praise you for him. We pray for our brothers and our sisters in Christ, both Jews and Palestinians in the Middle East at the moment. Please look after them. Please protect them. Please guard their hearts and their minds in Jesus. May they hold fast Jesus and in the horror of the life around about them, not tremble and fear the powers that be that wreak havoc, but trust in the Lord Jesus who one day will return and bring judgment on those powers. We pray that Jesus would come soon and visit that judgment soon. We pray this in his name.